people of God in Christ, what is love? That's the question I want us to start with. What is love? That's a, a question that we might ask, even generally speaking, in the context of our everyday lives and our relationships with, with one another. Our, our current Sunday school study is focused on the instruction of God's Word in the various relationships of the Christian life. But that's the key, of course. What is love according to God's Word? In the Reformation of the 16th century, there were five points, five tenets, as they're sometimes called, that emerged. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and God's glory alone. And there is some debate as to the exact order uh, of the five solas, as, as they are called. And, and yet there seems to be a, a significant degree of agreement that sola scriptura, Scripture alone, must come first because everything else is founded upon what Scripture says. And some 500 years later, we need to, to learn to go to Scripture first. We, we must determine to take our definitions, including of what love is, from God's Word. So what is love? Uh, the, the abusive husband says, I love you, to his wife, and yet... He mistreats her uh, when he is displeased with her. Uh, How can he say that he loves her? Uh, The too busy parent says, I love you, to to her children as she puts them to bed. But it's the first time in several weeks that she has taken the time to put them to bed. Is that love? Uh, A wife says, I love you, to her husband as they fall to sleep. But she hardly acknowledged him as he came home exhausted at the end of the day. What is love? And we ask the question because Psalm 18 is a psalm of love. Uh, we, can, we can hardly miss it, I would hope. Uh, psalm 18 begins with these bold words, I love you, O Lord, my strength. Of course, anyone can say that. I love God. Uh, Do you love God? Let's all love God. But what does that mean? We find ourselves in our present day in a a culture that is awash with man-made spirituality. We can find fault with Israel in the Old Testament at the foot of Mount Sinai. Um, We can find fault with them for the golden calf that they that they created, even as God was giving His law, which we ought to clarify, taking our definitions from God's Word, even as God was revealing Himself even further to His people Israel, even so they were at the foot of the mountain making a God to suit their own pleasures and their own schedule of how soon things ought to be happening. And yet we do the same thing. Uh, maybe not by setting up a, a physical idol. I don't think we have enough gold, do we, <laughs> to make a, a, a golden calf. But instead, by deciding for ourselves who God should be and determining for ourselves what it means to love the one true God. And so instead of leaving behind the idea of 
of our love for God. After all, we're not in verse 1 anymore. We're in verses 25 through 30. But instead of leaving behind the idea of love, we need to carry that idea forward throughout the psalm. Why does the psalmist love the Lord? And what does it mean to love the Lord? Is it just campfire spirituality? No, the psalmist teaches us more, more than just declaring our love for God. To begin with, he declares his love for a specific God, for the one true God. He declares his love for the Lord, his strength. To some degree, we're returning to verse 1 this morning in our study and proclamation of Psalm 18. I love you, says the psalmist to his God, but who is his God? His God is the Lord, the covenant God of history, but even more. And here's here's our focus. He, He loves the Lord because the Lord is his strength. And therefore... He has confidence. The first point this morning is the revelation of God. It's been said here before, but again, some people want to say, if God exists, why doesn't he show up? Why doesn't he speak up? But he has, and he does. The psalmist says this, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself merciful blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. So by way of those repeated words, you show yourself. The first point is the revelation of God. And right away, someone might say, "Uh, wait a minute, I, uh, I thought God would show up on his own not by way of God showing himself through the merciful and not through the blameless, not through the purified. But what we're hearing in this is that God has created man in his own image. On one hand, the revelation of God is clear in all that he has made. The person who says, if God exists, why, does he, uh, why doesn't he show up? That person is being foolish. It's the fool who says in his heart, there is no God, says Psalm 14, verse 1. And why is he a fool? Why is she a fool? Because, as Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, in in, in the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, for what can be known about God is plain to all mankind, because God has shown it to them. Does that sound familiar? God has shown it to them in the things that have been made God has shown it to them. Psalm 18 says the same thing. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. 
The difference, of course, between Psalm 18 and Romans 1 is that Romans 1, uh, or in Romans 1, we assume that Paul is talking about the the mountains and and the fields even more. Perhaps like Psalm 19, Paul uh, is talking about the stars, the, the vast array of the universe in the night sky. The heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims His handiwork. But but in Psalm 18, the psalmist says that it's with the merciful that God shows Himself merciful. It's with the blameless, as God's people live good lives, it's with the blameless that God shows Himself blameless. The psalmist is reflecting upon the image of God and man. And here's the irony of of someone saying, uh, if there is a God, why doesn't he show up? The funny thing is, the, the purpose of God in creation by creating man in his own image is so that he might show up through the righteous behavior of man. It's the same thing with the question. So so arrogantly stated, if there is a God, why is there so much evil in the world? But as God hears that question, surely he might even answer, you tell me. You tell me why there is evil in this world. Why is there evil in the world that I created good, without fault, without sin? without death. You tell me why there is evil in the world. Because you are complicit. O sinner, you rebel. You who rail, you who rail against me. You tell me, says God to us, why there is evil in this world. It's mankind who has brought evil into God's good creation. Do we understand that we are like the tenant, the the renter, who rents a property and then proceeds to invite wickedness into the house. The walls get damaged, the appliances get abused, the house becomes a wreck, and yet we have the nerve to go ask the landlord, why don't you do something about this? My house is wrecked. I'm not sure you even exist, Mr. Landlord, if I have to live in the mess that I have created. And in the same way, Why doesn't God show up? Are we kidding ourselves? The heavens declare the glory of God. What can be known about God is plain before the eyes of man in all that God has made. Even more, it's man himself. It's it's especially man who who has been created in the image of God. It's especially man, even beyond the mountains and the fields, even more than the deep blue sea, greater than the stars and the vast array of the universe. It's especially mankind who has been created to live and behave in such a way so as to put on display the image of God in all his glory. Why doesn't God show up? That's a question to ask yourself. 
dear sinner. We were created in the image of God. And yet we fail every day to display his glory by our lives in this world. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless, says the psalmist. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. There's there's a shift there at, at the end, isn't there? With the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. The Apostle Paul deals with this too in in Romans 1, that that man knows there is a God, that man knows all, uh, all that is to know about God by what has been made. But because of his sin, man is tortured by the knowledge of God. And Romans 1 says that man plunges himself all the more into sin in hopes of suppressing the knowledge of God that he knows that he can't help but know because he lives every day in the midst of a good creation. To put it another way, the sinner knows that creation is good and by a good creation he knows that God is good, but he also knows that he himself is not good and that the good judgment of a good God is due to fall upon him for his sin. Think about it. When, when you extend mercy to someone, you are the image of God because of the mercy or, or because with uh, your mercy shown, God shows himself merciful. And when you live blamelessly, which is to say when you live uh, above any regular need for reproach, when you don't lie, cheat, or steal, when you are faithful to your spouse, when you work hard at your job and, and in your home, you are, you are putting on display the very holiness of God. This is what you were created to do. Granted, you fail. Granted, when you, when you fail at this, you need to be forgiven by God because sin is the distortion of the image of God rather than the reflection of God in his holiness. But as you do so, as you, as you put God on display, better than even the mountains and the fields, the ocean, and even the universe above, you not only display the character of God, But you are torturing, torturing the evildoer. You are torturing the unrepentant sinner. Because more than the mountains, more than the fields of grain, more than the ocean and the stars above, you are setting God, by your obedient life, you are setting God before the sinner when all he wants to do is to suppress as much as he can the very existence of God. And so comes the second point, the humility of faith. Verse 27 says, For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. Let this be clear to all that that the point of of understanding and agreeing to bear the image of God before others is, is not to put ourselves above others 
The call of faith is the call to humility. Jesus, our Lord, made this point by, uh, by calling upon a child to, to come and stand in the midst of his disciples. It's recorded, at least in one place, in Matthew 18, that his disciples were, were squabbling over which of them was the greatest. And by the greatest, surely they were thinking in terms of, you know, who's the holiest? Who's the, who's the most worthy? Who, who deserves it the most, whatever it might have been in their argument? And, and Jesus called a child, a child to come and to stand before them. And even by that child accepting the call of Jesus to do that, the child was surely illustrating what Jesus, what Jesus thought to illustrate by calling the child. A child at the center of attention, a child up in front and on display for all to see. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There is an implication here that we ought to note. The implication is that at this point, some of his disciples were, were perhaps not yet believers. The specific reference is to the disciples. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And yet Jesus answered their question by saying, Unless you turn and become like children which seems to indicate that they had not yet turned and become like children. I'd like to think that one of them, maybe a few of them, (laughs) were sitting in the background, not caught up in this silly argument, not caring about who is the greatest. If that's the case, it isn't told us. What we are told is that Jesus made it clear that they must quit worrying about being great. First, be concerned about being saved. Not about whether you're great or not, but first be concerned about not going to hell. And if we would be saved, if we would enter the kingdom of heaven, then we must have the humility of a child. Why a child? Why are children the, the illustration of humility? Well, I don't think it's hard to figure out. They, they're, they're helpless. They're under the care of their parents. Uh, a, parents a child's parents shelter her, and they, and they feed her, and they teach her, and they instruct her. A, a child's parents are the child's very survival. Certainly, at least, the child's source of any existence above the level of poverty and, and misery. And we might note that it's, it's not the perfect illustration. There are children in whom arrogance shows up early. Children are known to disobey their parents. Children are known to run away from home, thinking to fend for themselves. But that as well provides a good illustration. All the child has to do to be blessed is to be quiet and listen. All a child has to do is listen and obey. All a child has to do is receive. How hard is it to hold out your hand and receive what is given to you? 
That's what childhood is. Trust and obey, for there's no other way, says an old song. Maybe you know it. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Children tend to do that naturally. But as we get older, we grow proud. We know better than those who are in authority over us. We know better than God himself when he says, Honor your parents. Don't murder. Curb your sexual desires. Don't steal. Don't tell lies. And be satisfied with what you have. But the point of Jesus in in setting that child before his disciples and and the point of Psalm 18 is is not really firstly obedience, but, but faith. The point has been made before here that humility is so much at the essence of faith that the two words can be taken as synonyms. They mean the same thing. In technical terms, humility is a sine qua non as they say, of faith. Without humility, there is no faith. So there might be an appearance of humility in a person, but if that person is not a believer in Christ, then that person's humility is not really humility. True humility, real humility, is faith in God. And someone might say, Boy, that's really beating me down, Pastor. And yes, that's exactly it, because pride is deadly. Preserve your pride and condemn your soul. But humble yourself as a sinner before a holy God, and you will be saved. James 4, verse 10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. But Psalm 18, verse 27, puts it this way, For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. And here then is what I think is the unexpected third point, the claim to confidence. And I say unexpected because who would expect humility to lead to confidence? Doesn't humility mean that we say, oh, I'm no good, I'm, I'm nobody, I can't do it, I'm, I'm helpless? Isn't that the stuff of humility? And we answer, not on your life. I'll be honest that here in verses 28 through 30 are the verses that most draw me to, to Psalm 18 because on my own, I'm not a very confident person. And we live in a day when we need to be courageous, and we need to be confident Christians. We need Christians who will say, I am a follower of Jesus. I am not a nobody. I am not only a somebody. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I can do it. I am not helpless. Not because I'm such a great person, but because of my faith in Christ and my identity in Him. Verse 28 says, for, in you, for it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness, for by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. 
So down with all false humility, as if, as, uh, as if it were some kind of a spiritual trophy to bury ourselves in discouragement and despair. Without a doubt, we would be dead in sin, except that God has raised us up in Christ. Without a doubt, we would be buried in sin, except that God has raised us in Christ and has, has even seated us in Christ in the heavenly places. We have been raised. We are alive. And our faith itself is the proof. We are alive and we are filled with the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And for this, we will need to break from this world. The world says, don't admit your weakness. Instead, strut your stuff. Just watch any professional sports these days stretch your stuff be proud of yourself claim your own identity but here is the exact opposite truth if we would care to receive it humility before god leads to confidence and that true confidence is founded on abject humility We already heard this earlier from James. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. And Jesus, our Lord, said something similar when He said, Whoever would save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for me and for my sake will gain it. And granted... Granted, the final fulfillment of these promises will be found in heaven. But does that mean that we have to live now such defeated lives? That wasn't David's perspective in Psalm 18. For by you, I can run against a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. That's the kind of confidence that we need in this short life. Yes, we we have the exaltation of heaven awaiting us, but that in itself should give us the courage and the confidence to say even now, by my God, I can leap over a wall. But make no mistake, where does such confidence come from? It comes firstly from the revelation of God. By knowing who God is, we become confident. And confidence comes from our humility before God. According to the world, that makes no sense. But as we humble ourselves before God, we gain the confidence of those who are trusting in Christ. Who knows whether we will survive the next battle? But who cares? Christ is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is our captain. He is our friend. And so we take everything that we have, and we do everything that we can, and we live every day for Christ. And we do so with confidence. If, and that's a big if, if we throw off all needless despair and all this false humility that says, I can't do it, I'm such a loser. 
So that we say with the psalmist, by my God, I can leap over a wall. And so the psalmist ends with this, and, and so do we, before we go to the uh, table of our Lord uh, this morning. Psalm 30, or verse 30, this God, this God, his way is perfect. The word of God proves true. He is a shield to all those who take refuge in him. What, why does the psalmist love God? Because of who this God is. Because he can be trusted. And because this God, the one true God, equips him and protects him. And let it be the same for us. That we love God, not because we decide to, but because we cannot help but love the God who so cares for us that we can live confidently before him and before the world. He has saved us in Christ. He loves us day by day. He cares for us. He provides for us so that every morning we set out with the victory already ours. There will be struggles. There will be suffering. But we will be able to leap every wall because the word of the Lord always proves true. And he is a shield to all those who take refuge in him. Amen. Please pray with me. Forgive us, O God, for not laying hold of the confidence that you would give us by saving us, by taking us to be your own people. May we see that your call is that we would be courageous and confident in our Christian lives. That we would not succumb to temptation. That we would not hesitate to repent and to keep repenting. Grant that we would see that the victory is ours in Jesus Christ and that in him we can and should and must be confident. In his name we pray. Amen.